Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Our guest today on The Resilient Surgeon is Dr. Paul Conti, and our conversation is about trauma, psychological trauma. Dr. Conti is a psychiatrist who obtained his medical degree from Stanford Medical School and then trained in psychiatry at both Stanford and at Harvard Medical School. And he is the author of the recently published book, Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. Dr. Conti currently is the founder and CEO of Pacific Premier Group, a comprehensive clinic of 17 psychiatrists, psychologists, and coaches whose mission is to offer assistance in any area that touches upon improved understanding of brain function and decision-making. Although Dr. Conti's clinic is broad ranging in their services, Dr. Conti has developed a deep interest and expertise in psychological trauma. From both his own deeply moving personal experiences with trauma and from his clinical practice, where he has seen the pernicious and often hidden impact of trauma in nearly all of his patients. In his magnificent book, which is so rich in compassion, scientific rigor, and clinical expertise, Dr. Conti reveals just how profound the impact of psychological trauma is on our brains, on the quality of our lives, and also on the lives of those close to us. Now, I can imagine that some of our listeners may be thinking that this stuff doesn't apply to me. After all, you might be thinking, you must be talking about trauma like that scene in war veterans or after some type of major childhood trauma. But this is a very limited view of the landscape of human trauma. And today, Dr. Conti is expanding our horizons to help us see that trauma affects the vast majority of all of us human beings, and often many times in our lives. Dr. Conti defines trauma as anything that pushes our coping skills to and beyond their limits, which results in a set of feelings that is seen on functional MRI clearly changes the functioning of the brain and its communication pathways. And these trauma-induced changes alter the lens through which we see ourselves and the world around us. I'm quite sure everyone listening can pause for a moment and think of an event in your life that did just that, alter the lens through which you see yourself in the world. And perhaps one of the more common ones in our profession as a cardiothoracic surgeon is the impact of making a significant mistake or technical error in the care of our patients, an event that can evolve into the second victim syndrome, characterized by a period of intense feelings of anxiety and shame, and an altered view of how we see ourselves as surgeons and physicians. 
all of which can have a long lasting impact on our practice of surgery and medicine and on our emotional well-being. But psychological trauma can also be chronic and pervasive as with the trauma of neglect and with systemic racism. Here a person gets messages over time that they're less than. And these chronic and repeated traumas can have exactly the same effects on the brain as an acute traumatic event over time. But trauma's insidious impact is not just on the victim of trauma. It spreads like a virus to other people in our orbit, usually without our awareness. As our lens on the world changes, our behaviors change, and our behaviors have a major impact on our loved ones and our colleagues, which is why Dr. Conti named his book Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. So I encourage you to set aside any preconceived notions you may have about trauma, listen carefully to Dr. Conti's wisdom, read his outstanding book, and get curious about the impact of trauma in your own personal or professional life and in the lives of those in your orbit. You might just end up seeing yourself and others in a bit more of a compassionate and humane light. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS cardiothoracic surgery ebook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app, so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Conti, an expert in trauma and uh, an individual who's a psychiatrist and has really changed the landscape of our thinking of trauma with his work in trauma and his recently uh, published book, Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. Uh, and Paul, it's just a great honor and a delight to have you on our, our, our show, The Resilient Surgeon. Thank you for being our guest. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for having me on. It's an honor to be here, truly. Great. And, you know, in the book, uh, Trauma, you said you made the following comment that one of my most favorite words is generative. And, you know, generative means creating or adding something of value to the world in a way that affects it in a positive manner. And, and literally your work uh, has cracked open the world of trauma to so many people and what it means and how pervasive the issue is. Uh, and your presence on this podcast is a similar generative act uh, that I can't thank you enough for because time is a precious commodity. Uh, you know, you run a big practice out there uh, and, and all the things going on in your world, and you've taken the time to do this. And, you know, these things like this that you're doing, you know, impact lives in ways that you never know. So a long way of just saying how grateful I am for, for you being on the podcast today. Uh, it's such a pleasure. And coming from another physician and being able to speak to a group of physicians in this way is it means a lot to me. So thank you yeah, for the yeah, opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I just want to frame the the nature. You'll know the nature of the beast, and the beast is our world of cardiothoracic surgery. And mm -hmm. having 
been in the clinical practice in the realm of that, I certainly understand a lot of the culture. And I think it's reasonably safe to say that we have a particular ethos, you know, in a similar vein to say Navy SEALs or pilots or, you know, other high performance groups. And, and I remember when I was in training, I, I had, uh, I, I, I come to realize later that there was a sort of a hidden curriculum in the curriculum of learning how to take care of patients and operate. And the hidden curriculum was develop the habits of discipline to keep going when you don't want to. And then here's one that's relevant here to be strong. Even when you feel like hell, mm -hmm. self-sufficiency, you don't need help from anybody else. Mm -hmm. And then of course, fix everything, you know, the surgeons hammer and the nail sort of thing. And the other thing that I think is, uh, these are all strengths for surgeons, but they can become problems also yeah. like anything. It's good until it's not. And the other thing that I think happens is that we are in our heads all the time. Mm -hmm. And this world of trauma that we're going to talk about is, is really about the heart and the emotions and the head. And you outline that so beautifully in your book, the logical world and the emotional world. And we, I think we as surgeons tend to minimize that emotional world and its impact on us. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to frame that up uh, in terms of, you know, helping us understand where surgeons are coming from and, and what that might mean to us. And I know certainly... Yes. In my own life, you know, the significant traumas that I involved endured, I thought they were the in the past. I was done with them. And until it wasn't until later in life that they surfaced to kind of haunt me. So anyway, that's that's the framing up. And you know, I think what would be great, Paul, if you know, to tell us a story, if you wouldn't mind, you talk about it in the book about your brother's suicide and how that had such a deep impact on you from a trauma perspective and, and the beginning of your journey down this path. Cause a story like that really, I think tells it all. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I think for me that the understanding of trauma, at least in a retrospective way, because I think at the time I, I didn't understand, you know, I didn't understand at the time, but after losing my brother to, to suicide, I, I had, such strong reactions of, uh, of guilt and of shame and of responsibility and of in some way being marked or cursed. And, and what's a, remarkable, and I've seen it more times than I could possibly count since then, was, you know, was before I'd gone to medical school. So I, I didn't have any, I wasn't armed with any knowledge. Um, yeah, well, you're just 24 or 25 at the time, right? Yeah, yeah I, no. I had a business job. Yeah, I worked for a consulting firm in New York and um, and I just had no knowledge. And, and what, what shocks me as I look back at it and what I've seen so many times since is just how rapid and reflexive that is and how it then changes you know, the, the person's conception of self and of world without a real understanding that it was different before. Right? And I think that that's what's so remarkable is that the, the trauma triggers guilt and shame and avoidance in us. And it changes it's our memory of that it was any different, right? It's so powerful. And because the emotion parts of the brain, right? The limbic system that overrides mm -hmm. the, the logical systems in our brain, you know, is, is now in, was in such a heightened state of, of distress and confusion that it just painted with a broad brush over the past too. And, you know, the idea that I had um, capability and I could strive and achieve, you know, all these things were really shaken in me. And, you know, of course, my, my self-care wasn't so good. I, I wasn't taking good care of myself. Mm -hmm. I was drinking too much. I was miserable. 
and and you know really took family and friends and, and people wrapping around me and then and then getting some professional help and thinking oh maybe I should need some therapy which I was even embarrassed about that at the time you know and right. then was so right. shocked at you know at the the person being able to help me by by taking stock of what was going on inside of me of all those overwhelming emotions and I think you know, far too often we, you know, in the service of trying to move forward with life, trying to move on, we, we just push those things down because, you know, we're embarrassed, mm-hmm. we're ashamed, we don't understand them. And it may be like, you know, the, the analogy I use often is an, you know, an abscess, right? That, that okay, yeah. it can be walled off, but it's, but it's still spinning off symptoms. And those symptoms are, are very impactful, or they can be, right? And they can be very impactful over time without us really knowing it. And um, that, of course, has stuck with me, you know, for the rest of my life and has informed my, my choices and um, the desire to learn about mental health, learn about how our brains work, and then to apply some of the learning, you know, to, in a way to help people understand, even if they're not coming under my clinical care, right? Because it would have been right, so right. helpful to have right. a, some touchstone to what was going on inside of me at the time. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's great. And you, there was a phrase that you used there that I think would be easy for people to gloss over, and it's central to everything that you talk about. And that is, it painted the trauma painted with a brush over your past. Mm-hmm. Can can you kind of elaborate on that because that's a crucial inflection point in the trauma right. unraveling or, or unfolding? Correct? Is that do I yes. have that right? Yeah. Yes. What yes. does that mean exactly? Yes, because the the emotion systems, right, the limbic system overrides logic, right? It was like all the time, a basic example of, is it ever logical to run into a burning building? No, right? If someone you love is in the building, person sprints in, doesn't think twice about it, right? Because there's there's emotion involved and that overrides logic. And the emotion systems don't care about the clock and the calendar, right? Like they just don't care at all, right? That's that's the logical side of the brain. So if this terror and this confusion is there, it stays constant over time, right? It does not just a recede. And the idea that time heals all wounds, like it's not true, right? I mean, time can heal some wounds, right? But but the, the wounds that affect us the most that change how our brains function. So this idea of post-trauma syndromes and the changes in our brain towards greater vigilance, no, they, they're real, right? It, it's not mm-hmm. uh, sort of a blind assertion. I mean, the, the state of the art of neuroscience and neuroimaging you know, tells us like this is true, that our brains are different going different. forward. Yeah. And one aspect of that difference is the, the sort of dominance of the limbic system in, in making the distress, the terror, the confusion present even when it was in the past, because again, those systems don't care about past and present. They're designed really to protect us. So, you know, the idea would be if something so bad happens, you know, you, you need to remember that it always needs to be present, you know, through human evolution, right? So if you walk over the hill and, and a tribe on the other side of the hill, you know, attacks you, then like never forget that, right? It, it always stays current and it's designed to protect us and to help us keep ourselves safe. But it's not designed for the modern world where then longitudinally we're trying to live complex lives and lives that require attention and perseverance and resilience. And we're trying to do all of this while we're carrying these, you know, quote unquote lessons forward mm-hmm. with us that that are, are 
inaccurate lessons, right? I mean, they, they say we are we are not safe. We should always be afraid. You know, the the heightened vigilance in us, the avoidance that comes about, you know, doesn't change or improve over time. And you know, th those a time when I took care of a lot of physicians. Um, I've taken care of physicians, mostly in the state of Oregon, also in the state of Washington. And I see this so much in, in physicians acquired either before, you know, becoming physicians or for other reasons or through their work where, you know, some trauma with the loss of a patient, somebody didn't right. go well, some, some family that was furious and said, you know, hurtful things or even a mistake. Like, you know, we're not perfect, right? We all make mistakes and the the guilt and shame, the, the, the trauma painting with a broad brush that people were suffering uh, is so marked. And I think this is a reason, of course, why there are higher suicide rates and higher substance abuse mm -hmm. rates. I mean, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not an accident that these things occur in physicians. And, and I think that also links to what you had said earlier about, um, about self-sufficiency, right? And, and the, yes. what's kind of bred into us as physicians, and I think the, the most strongly into surgeons is, you know, in many ways, great, right? It, but too much it's of a tremendous skill thing, until... Right, right. Because yeah. too much of a good thing is not a good thing anymore, right? right. And I think that applies to, to pretty much anything. I mean, think about being conscientious. Well, that sounds great, right? But if you're conscientious at a 10 out of 10, now there's the person who's so obsessive, right? That they, they really can't mm -hmm. function, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the same is true where the, the mechanisms of medical training, you know, inculcate these things into us, right. but yes. then the, the too much of a good thing is that it walls off from us the ability to express, even to take stock of What's going on inside of us? I mean, when I was taking care of a lot of doctors, I can't tell you how many times there was such clear, obvious, striking trauma. And it was the first time the doctor ever talked about it right? yeah. and, and felt, felt there was no permissiveness to talk about it or even to acknowledge it to self, right? That is like that strong, this sense of guilt and shame. And, and you know, I, I feel a tremendous compassion for physicians. And, and I think the harder the work is, the more compassion I feel is I, I see how we can get sort of pushed into a corner where, you know, the message that the self doesn't really matter. And mm -hmm. that we're, you know, we're, we're performing some duty, we're enacting something and that there should be some sense of pride in being able to, to sort of be the same, you know, even though emotions and, and difficulties may be roiling in us, you know, really doesn't serve people well. And, and the idea that the physicians are humans too, and, and yes, can have these brain changes. Again, it's not a soft concept. It's not a marker of weakness, right? It's right, really right. true change yeah. in the brain that, yeah. that, can be, that can really be helped. And that's, I think, the, the most important message is, is that the, the impact of trauma can be identified and, and, and made better, right? And that that's not some esoteric concept. It happens all the time but it has to be approached rationally and openly to have any chance of doing that. Yeah, and that's, a, of course, another issue with the world of medicine is the, for obvious reasons, you know, fear of being judged or professional consequences, you know, the sort of secretive world that we sort of seem to be forced to live in, in terms of our own personal lives and our struggles. Right, right. And so it's a double whammy on multiple fronts. Yeah, right. I, I, think, I think that it is, and I think there's, there's an environment in, in many places, not every place, but there's an environment of fear, 
right? And, yeah. and I think I think it pervades medicine that that if you admit any weakness, right? You admit any problems, you know, in yourself, or even if they're, they're distant problems in the past, that, you know, physicians are afraid of medical boards, they're afraid of, right. you know, right. opening themselves up, or there's a target for a lawsuit. And, and, and I think it's so sad, you know, that the mechanisms that, that are also supposed to support us, right, are, are often, um, really often the enemies of, yeah. of physician health. And I've seen that yeah. play out many times, too. And it adds to the sense of isolation where, you know, I've been in a room where I know some of the doctors in the room, there's a whole bunch of doctors yeah, in the room, and right. I know the problems that are going on in them. And I also yeah. know that they, that they aren't communicating even with themselves or with each, with each other and with each other. how much rich yeah. support could there, could there be a just acknowledgement of shared humanness. And those opportunities are so often lost because of really of shame and fear in physicians. And I think that that is, is just terribly tragic. And, you know, when I think of, of some of the physicians who've been lost to suicide, it's just, it, it's, it's just so awful. And it's so avoidable yeah. that you take people who, who, yeah. who wish to, to change, you make the world around them better and, are, and come with, with a self-sacrificing approach to, to life and, and then end up, you know, so many times being just like oh, bowled yeah. over by a, a, yeah. a you know a tidal wave and, and not surviving and and yeah. i think that's among the worst effects of of trauma within the medical field is how much yeah. it's hidden and then the terrible toll it takes on people yeah yeah well you know let's let's drill down on how you define trauma and and and, and maybe also the three sort of types of trauma because trauma you know, in my circumstance and many things, we can obviously identify, you know, big ticket items, uh, but there's a whole world of trauma out there that is affecting all of us. And if you could kind of go through what it means to have trauma, and then the three categories of trauma that you've perfectly elucidated in your book. Sure. sure. Yeah, I'm so happy to do so. Yes. Um, so, you know, as you said, we have to define trauma in order for it to have meaning, right? And the type yeah. of trauma... Yeah because the word is used in so many different ways, right? And the, the type of trauma that I'm concerned with and write about in the book and have seen over and over and over again in my patients from all walks of life is it would be defined as, as following. It's, it's something, and I'll describe what that is, that, that um, overwhelms, right? Overwhelms our coping skills and then leaves our brains different going forward. So that sense of, of terror, of shock, right? That can come all at once or can come over time. It overwhelms our ability to cope, right? And then the brain reacts in ways that, that truly change the brain, right? So the, the balance of communication within the brain shifts, right? And mm -hmm. it shifts towards avoidance, vigilance, um, narrowed horizons, a different sense of self, uh, a more fearful approach, a more tentative approach, right? So these changes happen in us and are readily identifiable. And, and, and that's what you meant about the paintbrush of our past. It paints over how we used to be. Right. So you no longer see it as an individual. Your old self is sort of gone, correct? Is, right. that, is that the right way of thinking about it? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think maybe an example, example I use, I'll say very quickly is, so if a, a woman who won an award when she was younger, right, and, and saw that award as such a great achievement that showed, hey, I can go make something of myself. And someone, you know, who is from difficult 
a difficult situation and not appreciated, but she wins this award and it makes her feel like, hey, I can make my way in the world. Look at what this says about me. Then after, after a trauma that overwhelmed her coping skills and left her different going forward, she saw it completely differently with no recollection that she had that she had seen it differently, right? So she saw it as a mockery of her. Like, what was the best thing yeah. I'll ever achieve? And it was yeah. given to me for no good reason. And 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 I have no understanding that like that's not how you thought about it before, right? Which is which yeah. is really in a broad way saying that's not how you thought about yourself before. That's not how you thought about life before. That's not how you thought about you in life yeah. before, yeah. right? Yeah. With yeah. no recollection. And that's the no, that is, again, the evil of the painting with a broad brush retroactively, because, again, if the limbic system doesn't care about the clock and the calendar and the limbic system is overwhelmed with fear that it can't make sense of and understand, well, it projects that into the future and into the past because it's not even seeing it that way. It just projects right. it everywhere. And, and, and oh, so please, yeah. Well, and I, I could see in the medical context, you, you, you have a mistake with a patient or something happens goes haywire you have a death i had a death on the table which was crushing and you know you start to question and wonder and retroactively like say well i must have been a crappy physician all along or whatever you know right. all the good things the mountain of good things and care that you're given before can be thrown into disarray by that one event Right, that's right, because it paints retroactively with a broad brush. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's a broad you know, brush. we see in physicians, and, and I've seen this the most in, in the surgeons that I've taken care of, is you know, this, it, it, it's this idea of fraud syndrome, right? The idea that we're not mm. good enough at what we do, right? And, and it makes people often be great at what they do, right? Because the person is then so conscientious, wants to get everything right, and you know, crosses their T's, dots their I's, people who make great doctors, great surgeons, right? Right. But then also have to labor under the false premises that come with that. So, so if I see a surgeon who has, I, I make up the numbers, but you know, um, one complication a year, right? It, it doing a type of surgery where the average in really highly qualified surgeons is five complications a year, right? It is more likely that that surgeon will feel like a fraud, feel like a failure when that one complication happens, right? Mm, like, mm, instead mm, of mm, saying, mm. look, I'm, I, I mean, if there are five a year for people who are really good and I'm having one a year, look, I, I'm doing the best I can. I would like that number to be zero, but like, look, the world is what it is and I got to feel good about what I'm doing. Right? And even just think about the basic math of that, right? If the average is five and you have one, like, that's better, right? But that's not how the person sees it, right? The person sees the one is the marker that they, they're really not good at this, so that, that they aren't qualified to do it into the future. And then they start mapping into the past and things that didn't go the way they want. And, and I've seen this generate terrible depression in physicians, panic attacks, drug and alcohol abuse, suicide. Yes, attacks. Yes. So, so, you know, the, the perfectionism and the sense of responsibility that's sort of naturally in people who are attracted to the field, right. And, and then really bred into people is in some ways good, but it's again, too much of a good thing. And now you have a population that is extremely vulnerable to the impact of trauma. And, mm. and yes, more often than not in, in the surgical field, it's an acute trauma, right? It's, it's losing someone on 
know, on the table, right? As you, yeah. as you said, yeah. but the traumas come and you'd asked about the, the different ways they can come. So, so an acute trauma, like, again, like what we just described or a trauma in combat or loss of a loved one and assault. So these are the traumas when we think of, okay, that's traumatic, right? And we can say, okay, that overwhelms somebody. Ah, the brain is different going forward. I mean, even how we transmit our genes. So, so like, mm -hmm. this is true that there can be, they can be trauma that leaves the brain different today. And that impacts children, it can impact children, uh, born years down the road. So the children aren't even conceived yet, but we know through the field of epigenetics that, that then how the genes are, are passed along, whether they're active or not, is impacted years down the road. So if something now can impact unborn and unimagined children, what is it doing inside of us? And, and yeah. yes, it's more often acute trauma, but there's chronic and vicarious trauma too. And, you know, the chronic trauma might be the, the belittlement or the constant communication by society of a person being less than for say uh, reasons related to race or gender, or sexual right. identity, right? And, and that can take the same toll in changing the brain, right? So the, so the, the, the progressive toll of being told, 15 times today that you're less than having five experiences tomorrow that emphasize that and over time there's no giant acute trauma but but the accumulation of the chronic traumas leads to the same outcome and we mm. see this i mean i see this sometimes in medicine i see this more in the in the general medical field where you know that that doctor who felt great about what he or she did ages ago who's now seeing four patients plus potential walk-ins every hour you know and just feel so awful because it can be an accumulation of that yeah. kind of yeah. of of trauma that then puts the person in this place and then i think the vicarious trauma is so important in, in medicine because you know we're impacted with thank goodness we have empathy within us right but but there's another side to that too that we're impacted by other people's suffering and and you know we see a lot of this and you see it in the people you're taking care of you see it in the family members and and it takes a toll on on physicians too so i think to be aware of acute chronic and vicarious trauma and that, it, that it's real you know it's not an abstract concept it changes our brains and it puts us at risk for all sorts of things that as physicians, we're already predisposed to. Mm -hmm. We already have right, virtually rates culture. Of yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. We already have, have higher rates of substance abuse, higher rates of depression. So then to add on top of that, the impact of trauma, which is actually predictably experienced in the field. And with all that resting in a culture that says, hey, you can't say anything ab about that. Like, is it any surprise that, that physicians really suffer disproportionately to, to the general public? You know, this is great. And I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but, uh, you know, it's just like mini revelation here on my part. And, and that is, you know, the, the, the emphasis right now is so heavy on burnout, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that process in physician, but yet the trauma piece is not talked about much, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, so it, it, here's another hidden driver, as you say, the hidden epidemic, the hidden driver of the, of the malaise in the world of physicians and the multi- right. Uh, faceted nature of how that comes about via culture training right. and our own personal histories and all that. And, you know, one of the thing I really wanted to note uh, is you said, uh, you know, we, we have one, one big complications and you start to see your past in a different way. And 
on the surface, the logic piece can we can we can all sit and say, and and some friend might say, well, look, it's just one. I mean, you're better than all the other, you know, people that have five. You know, that makes total sense. But it doesn't make sense to the limbic system. Right. All right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's like spitballs against a brick wall. Right. You right. can throw logic at that emotion all day long. You can all throw day long. Balls at the brick wall all day long, and it makes no difference. And it won't. It won't make a damn bit of difference. Yeah. The, the issue right. is underneath, and that's that's the false sense of control. At least in my opinion, I'm interested in what you're thinking. False sense of sort of control that we think we have over ourselves, and yet there is so much bubbling under the surface from our right. emotional standpoint, and that that just has such profound influences. Do you want to just elaborate on that? And, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and, I, and actually, I, this might be a good point for you to talk about what I thought was fascinating. Affect, uh, what was the sequence? Affect and then emotion. Feeling the and end. emotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah affect, yeah. feeling, and emotion. Yeah, yeah. I, I want if if I could, can I, I start with saying something about burnout? Yeah, yeah. yeah please. So, I, I just I detest this 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 concept and this this word applied to physicians oh, i'm so glad because this is a quality of I'm, i have a similar sort of notion but you're almost afraid to mention it yeah yeah i mean i'm in my early 50s so when i was growing up you know burnout was an, an insult right yeah, that was that was the <laughs> yeah. person getting straight d's you know smoking cigarettes when they should have been in class right yeah I mean, so yeah. so there's there's a value judgment Right in using that word. So look, at some point in time, physicians really, by and large, lost control over the practice of medicine. Right. Correct. And yep. and uh, that loss of control comes not just with the obvious negatives and liabilities, but it comes with ones that are, I think, much more insidious, much more sinister. Right. And and that's just the undermining of of, of the the you see it's the undermining of the humanness of the physicians themselves. I mean, how many times in being in and out of systems do I hear people in middle management talking about like my doctors, our doctors, right? As if they're commodities, our doctors are working hard, our doctors are doing this. And, and you know, th there is a sense of, of physicians as commodities, as things, right? As objectified things. And then if those things don't perform well enough, well, they burnt out, right? Like mm -hmm. a light bulb you have to change or like somebody who's what? Not working hard enough, not trying hard enough, not good enough. Right. And, and I think the concept is terrible. I mean, I, the way I see that is people most often when I see a physician who's suffering from burnout, what I'm seeing is someone who is experiencing predictable and understandable consequences of at best a dismissive and at worst a sadistic environment that they're trying to make their way in and all the disillusionment that comes with that is the fatigue, the inability to practice the way that people want to practice. And, and, and I think then when, when people aren't doing well, right, they, they need to be blamed. And if you say, oh, it's so sorry, I'm so sad people burn out. And you know, th that places the responsibility on the person who is the, being victimized by, by the system. So I, I, I can't stand that. And I think that it's one of the reasons you know, that physician health has not gotten any better, that the physicians lost control of medicine and now are basically persecuted by the people in control of medicine by and large. And then when they aren't doing well, well, that's, then that's your fault. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and I just think, you know, maybe we'll decide to take back that power and control. Um, but for now, I think it results in, in, in misery, suffering and, and, and avoidable deaths of physicians. Yeah. And I yeah. say that without any sense of, of exaggeration. Like I, I've seen yeah. that to yeah. be true. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
the other thing you, you had asked about, um, you know, the, the the limbic system, the rational, right? The logic versus the limbic functions. And, and you know, I, I think that's a product. I mean, I'm not a, a, an intellectual historian, but I think of, you know, the sort of Descartes, the Cartesian way of sort of seeing things and this whole idea that we're rational beings, right? And, and that that's, you know, that's how humans are supposed to be. That's how we should be. We're built to be that way. Um, and it's just completely false, right? And, you know, whether it's a result of the enlightenment or, you know, whichever philosophical thinkers, you know, it comes down to us that we're rational beings. And, you know, I, I, I think I'm going to write a book that says like everything I needed to learn about life, I learned as a, a senior uh, psychiatry, senior level psychiatry resident, like the things I should have learned, I think we all should learn in elementary school, right? Like how the primacy of emotions over logic, that, you know, we're logical creatures until there's emotion, right? And then the emotion overcomes us. So, so yes, there's this misconception, and, and certainly this is writ large in medicine, that if we're supposed to be logical creatures, who's supposed to be more logical than the physicians, right? Yeah, for the sure. Physicians yeah. are supposed to be more yeah. logical than the surgeons, right? So then there's a false conception of self, which dovetails, interestingly, with, with the idea of physician burnout, right? Because in both cases, it's objectifying, right? We are not things, we're not computers, we don't just act in logic, you know, things that hurt us, cause us pain, right? Th th that pain isn't always just limited to, you know, time limited on the inside, it can change us. And this is, this is just as true, or if not more true for physicians, given the work that physicians do. And if we objectify ourselves in a way of saying, we're supposed to be logic, logical, then we feel ashamed of anything that's not logical, and we feel ashamed of the emotion, we're really collaborating with the systems that are trying to objectify us and say, like, how close can we make physicians to light bulbs, right? You know, to anything you can interchange out. And I think standing up for our humanness, right, the humanness of the patients that we take care of, right, it, it involves understanding this, right, that, that like this, this whole premise is not true and emotion affects us. And if we explore how it affects us, we become much more powerful in intervening in the systems that are often oppressing us. So I'm sorry that's a little bit of a soapbox, but, it, but I, I think the way oh, no, no, it's, medicine treats doctors yeah, is terrible. It's, it's, yeah, not only that, but, you know, but also, you know, the culture of it and the logical uh, dominance that the way we are trained to be in logic and in our heads and the necessity for that. Right. But I remember, you know, I went to Hazelin for three months for opioid addiction and uh, prescription narcotics. And, you know, after I got out, well, I had to learn there. I, I didn't even know how to talk about emotions. I mean, I either felt great or I felt mm -hmm. shitty. You know, uh -huh. I, I honestly, I, I didn't have a range there. Sure. I knew if I was angry or something, but I mean, it used to drive my wife crazy that I, I would never express how I was right. feeling. Right. <laughs> I mean, it drove her nuts. Right. And, you know, I actually made a conscious effort. I got to figure out how to at least start to express them and be aware, right. aware of what motions I'm experiencing. And that was a little project that I had to to go on, you know, to actually develop that skill, I guess I would right. say, you know, to be able to sense and understand what I'm feeling and then to parse that out properly. And then of course, the big ticket for, for me, and I think uh, in particular, a lot of males is the ability to just simply express it without right. feeling right. at risk somehow. I don't know what right. that is, right? but it's, it's for real. Yeah. It's a societally induced falsehood imposed yeah. upon human, upon people, then specifically often more on men, more on physicians, more on surgeons, right? So, so like yeah, how yeah. much of a push is there to not express or to feel embarrassed or ashamed of expressing? And then think about how much of a difference that's made in your own life, 
Yeah. Right? I mean, you described oh, so just it, transformed it. Yeah, transformed right. it. Yeah. So, so if there's any proof that like this matters, this is not esoteric, right? That it changes lives, right? The change in your own life, like just grounds that. Talk about it's the proof of it's a proof of concept, right? Yeah, and, it is. Yeah, and and I think it's so important. I want to say this that like you 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 share difficulties in your own life, right? And I've tried to do so also in when I talk and right. writing. Yeah. Is this idea that that we sh we should be ashamed of this is so it's it's just so pervasive in medicine. I remember at one point I gave a talk. I was talking to maybe 300 doctors or so, and they were pretty senior physicians, often physicians who are managing residents, right? And, and I said during the talk that, that yes, I, I mean, I've had you know, mental health issues, you know, I have, I have high levels of anxiety, and I've been on and off medicines, and I could see like half the people in the audience like recoiled as if I had just said something, you know, so terrible. As if you know they're going to come tackle me off the stage and yank my medical license away from me, right? <laughs> and and look, sometimes unfortunately those fears are are not unjustified, right? Right. We yeah. To be able to, yeah. So we need to be able to say like we're real human beings, and we have yeah. we often have struggles in our past, and we often have struggles in our present, and to be able to own and acknowledge that and the the realness of that, the truth of that is so important. And it's not that long ago you have like, you know. 150 doctors recoiling at the idea of even saying it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so how are we supposed to how are we supposed to help other doctors and so doc, physicians in training the whole medical education system if we can't admit like these are not shameful things in us, right? Yeah, these no, no, they're not. They're not human yeah. problems. Yeah, human yeah. problems, and that that gets at a pet peeve of mine, and that is, you know, we all. I mean, I until I retired from clinical practice, I mean, I was a surgeon. Period. Yeah. I mean, as a father and all that, but I was a surgeon and I had to realize that I'm a human being first right? right. and come to really embrace my humanity, you know, and that's one of the three pillars that you talk yes. about. And, yeah. you know, I, I started a surgeon's group here, you know, with uh, five other surgeons and for them to have a place and a space to talk about their emotions and what's going on in their lives that is safe and they know it's confidential it's been literally so transformative for them. Yeah. I feel like it's one of the best things I've ever done is to create this group. And they keep coming five years later, despite being very busy. So the power of the community to, you know, allow people to express themselves and be real and be human is, is just overwhelming. Uh, yeah. It really incredible yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would, it makes a person a better doctor, right? Absolutely. It makes a person Absolutely. a better surgeon. Yeah. It's not, cause that's yeah. the, on that's, like the, the often unstated um, belief, right, is that, you know, especially in surgeons, right, you have to be so buttoned down, you have to be so no, logical, linear, right, that if you're going to let emotion in, right, you know, talk about throwing sand in the gears, right, that's, that, yeah, yeah. that person is no. not going to be able to, to function. And it's just like, it's just not true. Right. As you, you know, as you see so clearly in your own life and in the groups of surgeons and how much of a difference it's made to be able to express like it's so not true, but there's such it's a, just the yeah. opposite. Right. Right. It's just the opposite. Right. Yeah. There is such a fear. And again, I think some of that is the fault of our of our education, training, monitoring, licensing systems. Um, it's just built into the culture, but we can work against it. Right. And just as you know, I've been fortunate that that when certain celebrities, right, have read or endorsed my book, you know, that that 
it, it reaches to, to regular people and it, it, it says to them like, look, you can have these, you don't have to be ashamed of these problems too. This famous person you look up to does, right? And I think, you know, in our microcosm of medicine, right, we need physicians to be able to say that too, just to, to role model, hey, I, I can acknowledge that I'm a human. I can acknowledge that like, I'm not perfect. I can acknowledge I have right. problems and struggles and we need more role modeling of that because then the person has a different experience, like hearing like, oh, like that, you know, that doesn't throw people off track, right? Like in fact, right. it makes them right. better in all aspects of their life, right? They are then better parents, partners, community members, friends, right? They're like, no, it's better for everything because you said we are people, right? We are not, we are not things that perform doctor roles, right? We're human beings who are also physicians, right? And oh, to this, take this, care yeah. of the whole self makes everything better personally, everything. professionally, yeah. right? And yeah. we need to show that to people because, man, that is just such a core belief that, hey, you got to recoil from any of this because it's going to throw you off track, right? And yeah. it's just no, not it, true. No, it's not. An, I mean, this transformed my relationship with my children and also, I mean, my level of connection with them, understanding, uh, you know, I kind of version one, Mike Mattis before treatment and version right. two, you know, I mean, I, I, I was able to consciously sort of embrace the surgical qualities mm -hmm. and now bring in the other human qualities. And it, it's it, for me, at least from my perspective, it's made me a much better um, person uh, and mate to be around, which, right. which has been incredibly valuable for sure. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And on the one hand, as I listen to that, and I often will think this, sometimes when I'm talking, when I'm listening to someone else talking the way that you're talking, I think on the one hand, it's like, it's so obvious, right? Like, like of course that's true, right? Like you got in touch with yourself, you, you yeah. process trauma that was in the present, you know, even though temporally it may have been in the past, right? You, you learn to get in touch with your own emotions, to express them to others, to integrate them into your conception of self personally and in the work that you do. And everything got better. I mean, we can look at that and say, of course, right? How could it be any different? It's almost but, duh. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. But then there's the other side of it, like, wow, that's like such an exceptional, like you're saying something that people normally don't say, right? It, it, it's like, it's, it's something, it's outlying, it's exceptional in that way. And, mm -hmm. you know, I hope that it strikes physicians listening to like, that doesn't add up, right? Something that's so good and so healthy and so obvious in how it's good and healthy. Why is, why should that thing be such an outlier? for people. And I hope that that helps people to, to, to get help and to, and to realize, of course, we need help if we're depressed or we're, you know, we're suffering, we're addicted to something, of course, but, th but there are ways that people deserve and need help that aren't as dramatic as that, right? As dramatic as those, as those end results. Yeah. Right. Right. And, yeah. and that can prevent it from getting there, right? That if we're taking care of ourselves earlier on in the process, that there's a preventive medicine aspect of that too. So I just think I want to really emphasize that so much. That I think your openness is, is, I see your openness as role modeling. And, and I think that is Thank wonderful you. because, yeah. oh, because we, we physicians so, so desperately so desperately need it. Um, yeah. Which relates one question you had asked that I didn't answer. You had asked, you had, you asked the affect, feeling, and emotion. You know? Oh, right, right, right. right. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and this, this I actually I get a lot of traction with physicians uh, about this um, often. So, 
so for the neurobiological perspective, right? Affect, feeling, and emotion are different, right? Affect, Actually, you know, Paul, Paul, before you go into this, yeah, perhaps a little vignette from me would help. Oh, sure. Yeah, this, please. You know? Yeah. So I, you know, I dismissed the evidence of, you know, the major traumas in my life as being gone in the past. You know, this is uh, a while ago, uh, you know, and so my mother, you know, when I came home one day as a kid and I was about 10 years old and she's you know, drunk, cutting her wrist, blood everywhere. The house is dark, you know, and my stepfather comes Sorry. in and starts uh, hitting me and stuff. So, but, you know, so I was done with that, you know, she's dead and gone and I was done with all that. But then after I got out of Hazelwood, I realized that there were certain triggers and this is, speaks to exactly what you're going to talk about. Yes. And and the triggers were always related to somebody that I was close to. Mm-hmm. And if they were harsh with me or said, or, or said, no, if, if, if they said they were going to do something and then they didn't do it, mm-hmm. it and, and depending upon the intensity of it for nor, I, normal people, they would be like, no big deal. But when it happened to me, uh, I would actually feel myself sinking. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how, I, and I'd be underwater and I could see it happening and it would happen so instantaneously. Mm-hmm. And then it would take literally for me, sometimes 24 or 48 hours to surface from it. Uh-huh. And initially when these things happen, I saw it as a direct link to the individual who instigated the problem. Mm-hmm. All right. You know, sure. the, the, whatever they said no to her. It's an attribution then, bias, right? It's yeah, an, it's an attribution, attribution bias. bias. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. so clear. You did this to me. Right. But then when my daughter one day said, I, I, you know, I don't want to go to lunch today, it was no big deal. And I had to say, I, I felt the same sinking reaction. And that's when I realized, my goodness, there's more to this. Right. Right. Than, yes. than what meets the eye here. And so maybe that will, is that a good setup oh, for yeah. what you're going to talk about? It's, it's a, it is a perfect setup. Yes. Yes. Because you're capturing something that's just so important and also so common in us because trauma is common and the changes it makes in our brains is common. And what you're describing is, okay, so imagine like there's a sore spot, so to speak, right. You know, in your mind, your limbic system. And, and, you know, it's, it's been there. It doesn't heal. Right. Because it was there over time. It was there since you were a kid. Right. Yeah. The scar, whatever. Yeah. Right. So it's there just waiting to be poked. Right. And, and then if someone, so you say if someone's disappointing you in a way, it's like, you know, like if you just touch somebody lightly on the arm is okay. Like that doesn't hurt them. Right. But if you secretly have a terrible bruise underneath, even that light touch then triggers a very strong reaction. Right. And, and that's what you're describing, right. It's a light touch of some um, disappointment, right? Some lack of fulfillment of, you know, an, an imagined role responsibility to you, but, but it's, but it's it was very, only with people that were very close to me though, outside, right. it didn't matter a damn, you know, I mean, right. Right. really which, profound which, difference. Right. Which makes sense because it's the people in your personal life who, who feel like, okay, we, we have an obligation to one another. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. because that obligation was so disappointed when you were a child, right? That the, the people who were charged with taking care of you as a child were not taking care of you, right? So the yeah, so right. it makes sense that the, that the disappointment is personal, that if your daughter says, no, I don't really want to go to lunch, it pokes that sore spot, right? Just a little, but it is so sore that it brings you back to what that felt like 
when you were a kid, when you think when you're describing a sinking feeling, like, oh, you're sinking, I'm guessing that it's a sinking towards a despair and towards a vulnerability. I mean, I, I just would shut down. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe it. It was, it, it was awful. I hated it. I didn't know how to control it right. or get rid of it. And, you know, right. once I realized though, right. Okay. There's something off here, you know, right. instead right. of the associative bias, you know, association bias, you know, that you're talking right. about. Right. And then yeah. you said, I mean, being shut down, which is exactly the defense that the brain will use in children, right? Because a children, a child can't make sense of, you know, why is my mother bleeding and this and, and why is my stepfather hitting me? Right. Like there's you can't make sense of that, right? Because there is no sense to it, right? So the child will conclude it's his or her fault, right? Or the child will shut down. Like their defense mechanisms to survive in the moment, right? So you're shutting down, then is like, you know, think about as an accomplished adult, right? Uh, you know, a physician, a surgeon, a parent, right? So you're mm -hmm. so much farther on in life. But when triggered like that, the same shutting down occurs, right? Because the, the limbic system is the, is the part of you with the bruise, right? Metaphorically. Yeah, right. right and right, when right. it's poked like that, it doesn't give a damn that you're an adult and a surgeon. You can take care of yourself. It does not care at all. It doesn't know the difference between that and when you were 10 years old in the story. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's doing its job. Right. It's doing its job. Yeah. Right, right. And it's taking time. So it is time is not like, a rod going forward, right? Time is like string going forward, right? Because you can, because a string is malleable and you can take the string from 2022 and, right. and you can touch it right back like 1975, right? And then 1975 is 2022, right? That's how the limbic system responds. And, and that's where the, this will lead into like affect feeling and emotion that affect is aroused in us, right? And, and the mm -hmm. term, you know, in this, context it means it's 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 limbic right and it's and it's drawn from us without our choice right yeah so, i mean i so, had no choice and it drove me crazy i mean i just could not understand how it could overtake me so much right right and and again, it's designed for survival so if you're walking down the street and somebody jumps in front of you and shoves you right then then you have an, an aroused response, right? An aroused affect of say fear, anger, right? And it courses through you and your heart starts beating faster and your blood vessels start vasodilating. You start getting ready for fight or flight and then you know it, right? Because it coming to conscious awareness is the least important of that cascade I said. Mm -hmm. Body mm -hmm. and brain are ready for a survival interaction. So the aroused fear, the aroused anger, right? It serves you for survival purposes and everything is ready. It's coursed through you. And then, okay, now let's do the last thing, which now you're aware of it. I'm angry. I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? Right. But, but it's, but you're already prepared. It's already been aroused yeah, right. through you. And, and that's where like, that's can be the worst part because it starts the cascade of problems, yes. or it can be the part where we intervene and change things because affect, which is that, that the, the primary sort of quote unquote emotional limbic things that are raised in us then becomes feeling. Feeling is when more, so now the cortex is starting to come online and now we're relating the affect to self, right? Well, I am being threatened. I am afraid, right? Mm -hmm. And then the emotion part is when we're in the outer parts of the cortex where we relate self to others, right? I am afraid and angry because this person just pushed me and I have to figure exactly. out if I need to, yeah. right? 
So affect aroused feeling, self, emotion, other, right? So, so you can imagine, in, 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 you don't have to imagine, you, you're describing concisely like, what this is like, right? It's the, if we don't understand the aroused affect, we don't have an observing self is right. I get you. Observing self. I, I, I want you to just emphasize the observing self because that's a yeah. crucial part of this, in, of this in, enterprise of healing from trauma, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes, an observing yeah. self or an observing ego, right? It's 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 the person part of us that can stand back and look at what's going on inside of us, and yes, imagine yes. what the world of difference from when you were triggered in this way, and then I'm guessing so the affect is one of you know, it just feels probably some fear and some guilt, and it's just it's all bad, and then when you relate it to self then look, right, I feel this way, right? Then, then you're identifying with, with the affect, and then you feel rejected by, right? And she's rejected me, right? Mm -hmm, so there's mm -hmm. a cascade there that's reflexive that is, is it's painful, right? And it's no, not yeah. good for relationships, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, no. and, and it changes if you have the observing self who says, whoa, okay, I can be triggered this way. Huh, why am I triggered this way? Well, I'm triggered this way because of things that happened to me when I was a kid. Right. It makes sense right. that I'm triggered. Th no. this way and and it's not my fault the response is not there's not guilt and shame for me to feel and and the response of anger or of fear is you know what that's how i felt then i understand that but i've changed my life right i don't i i don't have to be afraid i'm a competent adult like think of how all that then gets worked through and then the feeling you have about yourself is different as a person who overcame those tribulations, a person who made a life where, where you're safe and you help other people and you raise your family in a safe manner, right? Then you, the aroused affect, because you can observe it and see it leads to a good feeling of self, right? And this mm -hmm. is just a frame shift. So the person feels better. Yeah. It's a frame shift towards truth, right? And then from right. the perspective of feeling good about yourself, you can say, oh, I did, you know, my daughter's got other plans or, you know, then it doesn't make yeah. me feel bad about you or her. And no, that no, is a it, different branch point. It's exactly where I'm at. It's so remarkable. Uh, and, and, and this gets at another key notion that is uh, the contagious nature of trauma. Yes. Because as you said, you know, so it's not good for the relationship. It wasn't because what I would do is then I'd withhold, you know, mm -hmm. I would, yes. I would not talk. I'd be resentful because she quote did this to me. Right. Uh, and that, that doesn't bode well, you know, over the long right. haul for connection and intimacy. Yeah. And, and, and usually it's also shame. Sorry, it's a response of triggered shame that the withhold, yeah. we feel ashamed of ourselves. So we withhold. So that there's a reflex of guilt and shame, right? And from there, it damages sense of self and it damages relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So this, yeah. this is pervasive, this issue, but you know, that's an, you know, mine is an extreme example, but you know, another one that I heard that it just relates to how even simple things can traumatize us. Uh, a woman sitting in a bed, a young girl uh, painting and with her dolls and the mother walks by with a laundry basket and says, I wish I had time for that. Okay. Now that might be in, for some people, a, a, a nearly inconsequential a comment, but it's apparent and guilt. I mean, so now that little moment is relived over and over and it becomes kind of a, it seems to become kind of a defining element of, right how she views herself sure uh, you know and and so whether you call it micro major trauma whatever is trauma right. and it's devastating and its impact long term is is that right i mean is, am i getting this right yes but the, the 
Yes, but what I would put around that is, is so, so there are touchstone events where you could say, okay, that doesn't seem yeah. like a giant event, but it sticks with the person, right? And some of it may be just, you know, the vagaries of salience in our brains, things we don't fully right, understand, right, 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 right. But, but what's so important to that is the, the soil, so to speak, into which that seed falls, right? If that mm. child has a strong sense of self and a good, you know, they, they know that that child knows that she's worthwhile, right? That she's loved, right? Then, then like, that's not going to have that impact, right? If the child right. doesn't feel that, and it may be because that parent is always dismissive or that parent is always envious of the child's freedom and, and resentful of her own burdens, right? Or it may be that things are great at home, but that child is ostracized at school. She looks different, sounds different, dresses different, whatever it may be. Yeah, and we yeah. need to create then the soil for something like that to just, you know, be the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Yeah, and, yeah right. And now and like well that, ah, yeah. then it becomes yeah. symbolic of like, oh, I was so hopeful my mom would look at what I'm doing or like feel good, but, but you know, it's not good enough to, to, to look at and I'm not good enough for attention. Like, yes, absolutely. That comes into people and it's terribly traumatic yeah, it, yeah. because it's, it's the seed of the moment is falling into the broader traumatic soil. That's, that's why the brain change happens from something that would seem relatively small, which right. can relate right. also to the multiple hit hypothesis of how post-trauma yeah, yeah. things come yeah. along, but it yeah. fits. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we're getting close to our time here for you. And um, I can, honestly, I could go on for quite quite a while talking about this. But thank you. You know, if, if we were going to end on anything, um, I think the the idea of therapy uh, and how you refer to it is such a, a great way of talking about it. Um, you know. And I went to a psychologist for three years. It was mandated. And uh -huh. there were, and that shined the light on what was kind of going on under the hood for me. But I also found that there was kind of a quality of, of repetition of sort of certain things over and over. And, you know, I found myself saying the same thing. So, but what you talk about is a therapist that can take a de novo look, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at, the entire situation. And, and that is the profound value of a therapist as, as I see it. And then, you know, it is allowing is, I think, I, I guess I see it and you tell me if I've got this right or not as a therapist, helping you to become an observer of yourself. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. The therapist helps the person take a de novo look, right? Yes. It helps the person yeah. then, then be able to, to observe themselves, which I see again, I can't tell you how many times, that person comes into my office. I haven't seen them before, right? But I know what's going on is trauma-related. And again, people across the socioeconomic and employment spectrum, including physicians who I can think of the scenarios in my mind as I'm saying it, mm -hmm. they come mm -hmm. in and, and you know, we establish a rapport or they're referred and it's a warm handoff. And it's like, we, we establish some trust, right? Then the person sits and, and I don't say much of anything. And the person starts talking. Right. And, and they start saying something they've never said before. Right. Like, remember someone coming in talking about I was, you know, was abused by a coach. And so it's just telling me the whole story. Right. I didn't do anything. Right. I mean, yeah. and, and they, yeah. and, and by the way, they've never said the words before. Right. right? And they won't right. even say, right. if it starts to come in their head, I was abused. No, no, they'll think of something else. They won't even imagine the words in their head, but they'll right. say it when right. they walk in here because we create a safe, environment in which it is permissive 
to express in which there's a well-meaning mutual search for understanding and truth. Right. And, oh my goodness, yeah, how that yeah. changes, how that changes. changes. I think that's the main message is this is not esoteric. And when this is going on in, in a person, it absolutely can get better. And it's not rocket science making it better. I mean, the medical systems, our healthcare systems don't readily provide therapists and person time, right? There are barriers to entry and waiting lists. But if we're perseverant and we get, we say, look, I, I, I want this help and I'm going to find somebody I can do good work with, I can build a rapport with and, and build trust with and, and express back and forth and learn, then like absolutely we get better, right? We no. get predictably better. So, so to, to know that part of it, that whatever a person may be struggling with inside, it's not that you open a can of worms and you can be at two and a half years or five years later, it's like no better or two months later. It's, it's not how it works when it's done in the right way, um, which is not that complicated. The benefits are tremendous. And the preventive yeah. aspects are true. We perform all roles better, personal and professional, and it helps us in the future, including physical, as we know, cascades of stress hormones aren't good for our cardiovascular system, right? Like, and they're not good for autoimmune disease. Like, so there's mm. so much of a preventive so element, yeah. physical and mental, to be able to take the sort of the, the metaphorical, the trauma abscess inside of us and, and the trauma look abscess, directly yeah. at it and change it. Yeah. 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 And, you know, just in closing, I mean, you made a statement uh, that almost every addiction that you've ever seen uh, is in some way linked to trauma in the past. So yes. that just a brief note on that. And then the other thing is, if one experiences a trauma, like a case lost or a problem yeah. with a patient or whatever, what can one do to like, meet that, cut that thing off at the at the pass, you know, yeah. instead yeah. of allowing it to become, a, you know, an abscess, so to speak, right, right. It's so important to be able to talk about it with someone mm -hmm. trusted, not just in our own minds, because there are error checking mechanisms in us that come online when we're talking to somebody else. So talk about it and talk directly at what the fear is. I mean, they, I'll have this happen where I've taken care of somebody, I haven't seen them for a while. Then they have, a, they have an error, like we described, there's a death in the practice and they come back in and we talk about what's, what are you feeling? So I'm feeling like I'm a shitty doctor. I should stop. I'm, you know, I'm terrible at this. Okay. Like, let's talk about it. Now, if I know the person, I know it's natural. I, I know you, you feel that way. Like it comes from, you know, the, the, the conscientiousness that's at a 10 instead mm -hmm. of an eight mm -hmm. or, or it relates to the old trauma. So like, we can look at that and we don't have to be afraid of it. It's not like in the Lord of the Rings saying Mordor, right? People right. want to say right. Mordor, right? It's going to, it's going to bring holy hell, right? And people will feel this way about it too. And we take the power out of it. The person says, you know, I, I feel incompetent. I feel, say it, it's okay, right? And then we'll look at it. Is that true? Is there, if it's really, yeah, yeah, right. sometimes if it's really it's true, the truth. we'll have to do something What's the truth? It, right? Yeah. But, but yeah. What, what's really the truth? And, and that's yeah. so often the case with traumas. We can look at it. We don't have to be afraid of it. Let's feel around the edges of it. Let's see what it has to tell us. And then, you know, it flies it up the flagpole. Are we going to salute it or not? And then right. we take the emotion out of it. And, and it doesn't, it's not, that hard the majority of times for that person to then feel grounded and to know what they knew all along, right? Think of the logic emotion. Person knew it all along, but the logic didn't matter. When right. we come at the, the limbic aspects of it, then we put those in place. And then what matters? The logic. The person says, okay, and they can go back to work. Then it matters. Then the logic matters. Right. Yep. Yeah. We, yeah. We've, we nice. remove the barrier to it mattering. Yeah. Yeah. And the addiction piece, uh, any, any, 
final thoughts on that? I mean, I remember an ex-colleague of mine said, oh, Mattis, he's just an addict, you know, and, and it's an, it's like burnout. It's a pejorative, it's such a pejorative, right. pejorative thing to be called an addict or think of myself as an addict. And it, right. it feels like such a moral failing, you know, but uh, right. any oh, yeah, thoughts? It's just a stigmatizing label, right? As yeah. if oh, that's what that person, that person came out of the womb an addict. Right. Yeah. I mean, I so, so I'll say, like, what, like, what? None of us comes out of the womb addicted to something, right? Unless the mother was addicted. But you know, you know what I mean. Like, we don't come out of the womb an addict. So, so, like, what has happened that has led to addiction, right? And look, every now and then, there's an interesting biological example. There's certain biological predispositions for strong euphoric responses to alcohol, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. person had a couple of drinks when they were 15. Oh my goodness, they can't stop. Like, so sometimes it's not trauma. But the vast majority of times, I mean the vast majority, that the, the that addiction is traceable to trauma. And when and I'm infuriated at times, and I'll see someone who's had seven residential stays, literally, right? And no one has taken the trauma history. No one's talking right? about it. And, right. Yeah. And if we come at addiction through the lens of trauma, I, I think the results are astronomically better than then ignoring the trauma, right? Like we're ignoring, if we ignore the inciting factor that is still alive and present in that person, why do we expect that they're gonna get better? And this is why I wanted to bring it up, not, not so much because of me at all, but because I just want our colleagues to view our other colleagues who are struggling with such things and right. addictions can be not just the obvious ones. I mean, it can be all sorts of things. Yes. You know, sex, food, whatever. Yes. Uh, and, you know, to just bring in that humanity piece and the compassion and the community yes. that you talk about so eloquently in your book. So yes. we're over time, Paul. I just uh, <laughs> really just so honored and delighted that you were you were able to join us today. And I, I just know for a fact that you're going to touch the hearts of, of many of our colleagues in medicine and cardiothoracic surgery and I hope uh, shine the light on some of the struggles that they've had and help them in that way. And I, I recommend your book at the highest level. Again, it's trauma, the invisible epidemic. And where else can people find you, Paul, if, if they want to reach out to you? There's a website for me. That's just drpaulconti.com and it's dr. And then my first name, you know, Dr. Mm-hmm. Dr. Paul Conti. Um, I have a clinic in Portland, Oregon, although we, we, um, we do work around the country, but we're based in Portland, Oregon. It's pacificpremiergroup.com. And that, that mm-hmm. website says some of how we work and how we approach trauma. So those would be the two. Yeah, I think those are the, the two best websites. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words and for having me on. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Okay. Take care. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.